Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Catherine. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. You've been stressed? I've been all over the place. You pulled an all-nighter this week? Yeah, I did. You've been stressing, you've been studying, you've been learning, you've been thinking? What have you been thinking about? Um, Something I don't know at all about, which is difficult mathematics, and specifically chaos theory, and... Uh, Why have you been up all, pulling all-nighters reading about chaos theory? Um, well, I'm trying to understand where this is going, mm-hmm. and why there is so much variation in what we're seeing and, you know, how it ends, really. Okay, you're trying to understand how it ends. My understanding from our conversations is that that at first we thought there was going to be a vaccine and that was what it was just like, hang tight until we get a vaccine. Now it seems like we don't really have a way to suppress the virus. We failed at a coordinated national strategy to keep things in check until we have a vaccine. There's a lot of promising news about the vaccine, but realistically, we don't really know when it's going to happen. So my understanding is that where this is headed in the U.S. is herd immunity. Yeah. Is that right? uh, Yeah, but what do you know about what herd immunity is? Herd immunity is the idea that enough people in a particular community um, get the virus and develop antibodies. And with antibodies, we assume they are immune for some period of time, although we haven't totally proven that, but it's a widespread assumption. Mm -hmm. So enough people become immune that people who are not immune are very unlikely to get the virus, like the rate of transmission goes down because just there are fewer people who can possibly get it. So it's not like everyone in a community has to get it, but like, I think I've heard 40 to 70% of people need to get antibodies in order to slow the spread enough that the virus might die out or be at a really, really low level. Right. That's correct? Well, mostly. And, And that's how I would have described the term before I started looking into it more. Wait, I just got this down. Yeah. I don't like where this is headed. I hear like chaos theory, <laughs> like I, I'm hearing everything we knew is wrong. Um, no, 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 that's not the case. My understanding of that is 100% from you. Yeah, no, I, my understanding of it is changing. Hmm. Yeah. You wrote, a, you wrote an article in February, which is my, my primary source for this information. Yeah, and it was... The prediction in that article in February, which was called You're Likely to Get the Coronavirus, was that we were headed toward this sort of herd immunity threshold, which is often around 60%. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the number thrown out there as a real rough estimate back then was 40 to 70% of people yeah. being immune before uh, you stop seeing this the level of spread that constitutes an out, uh, uh, epidemic or pandemic. Mm-hmm. And who, like, is that at 40 to 70%? Like, who is that? Like, Isaac Newton said that? <laughs> or who? where did that rule come from? So the, the person who gave those numbers, which were obviously very 
preliminary at the time because the U.S. had like five cases mm-hmm. um, was Mark Lipsitch, who's a, a really smart and well-respected epidemiologist at Harvard. He was making really a qualitative point. He was basically saying, listen, this is going to spread. It's really widely. It's probably much further spread than we know about. And if we don't act real quickly and start testing and, and shutting down, just making the point that for most diseases, it, it's, it's about 40 to 70 percent. So now I wanted to kind of come back to him and t- test those numbers a bit and see if that is really where we're going. And? And he has since then changed the estimate a little bit. He still thinks that you know we're headed in that direction, but now puts it at 20 to 60%. More likely toward That is the, a wide range. Yeah, that's what I said. And he said, yeah, well... I'm kind of out of the <laughs> business of prediction, but that, yeah, that's a difference. If you have a case fatality rate of 1%, which is about where we are, and if that did continue at that whole population, that's a difference of like 30 million people globally. Like um, 30 million deaths. Like the range between 20% herd immunity and 60% herd immunity worldwide is 30 million deaths? Uh, roughly, yeah. Got it. So whether whether we get to herd immunity at 20 or 60% is a hugely consequential thing. Exactly. Okay. I think I understand the basic premise, but I don't understand how 20% could be possible. Exactly. And you know, in New York, um, our best studies say that we have about 20% of people being Right, we're Indian. at 20%. And actually, I just read, read a story about um, in certain neighborhoods in Queens, they've found up to 68% antibodies. Which is, of course, evidence of a lot of tragedy, but but they, it's possible that they are, even on the higher end of the predictions, that those neighborhoods already have herd immunity. Well, that's why I was starting to get excited when I, you know, even if it's not 20%, if it's somewhere close to that, then we're in much better shape than I had imagined. I mean... Okay, I'm experiencing a little bit of a conflict here because I want this to be true. 20% would change everything. Everyone wants it to be true. But I also don't understand how that could be possible. I thought the whole concept of herd immunity was, you know, (laughs) herd-like. Like a majority of people, right? Yeah. Yeah, that is intuitive. And it doesn't immediately make sense that it could be so low just from a biology and medicine perspective, which is why it gets into these complex mathematical phenomena. Mm -hmm. It was sort of clarified by an example that Gabriela Gomez gave to me. She's a mathematician who has collaborated in the past with Lipsitch. She's currently leading this international coalition of researchers to try to model where this pandemic is headed. She said she's very confident that the threshold for herd immunity seems to be 10 to 20 percent. 10 to 20 percent? That's based on models of multiple countries in Europe. So it's not necessarily extrapolatable. But And, and again, I should say that no one else that I spoke with thinks it's that low. But everyone agrees at least that that's theoretically within the realm of possibility. So I wanted to explore more about how that could be even theoretically possible, right? How could that be possible? Her theory is that a lot of other models are underestimating the idea of heterogeneity. What does that mean? 
that this is not a model where we really see predictable outcomes based on circumstance that you might have a sick person go onto a plane and infect dozens of others and you might have a sick person fly and create no more cases those events start to seem sort of random yeah chaotic like are some people just really not likely to ever get infected given the same exposure and why would that be what are the do we have theories on one that? of the researchers mentioned even like we don't know these are things we'll find out later like something like the patterns of of breath or density of nose hairs the case for nose hair <laughs> all that we know don't that trim that nose hair that's just one of many variables there are at least going to be some physiological differences that will make it one person more likely to become infected and have that virus sure. thrive and spread within them. And other people will just kind of uh, breathe it out or it won't stick. Right. So there's some percentage of people that just aren't susceptible for some reason. So no, you can knock out. Not, no, everyone's susceptible. Uh, it, but even a small variation in how susceptible you are to a given exposure is just makes prediction difficult. And that's just one thing that makes prediction difficult. That you also right. have these super spreaders who some people are shedding a ton and some people might be shedding very little. And some people come in contact with tons of other people and some people totally isolate. And so once you start trying to draw models about where this goes, what is that herd immunity level? You have to factor in all these variables that are different from if you were just vaccinating everyone. Is that what chaos theory is? Well, chaos theory comes into play when you're looking at these outcomes that don't seem possible. And mathematicians like her try to find order and make predictions within that system, even when things mm -hmm. seem random. The kind of field of chaos theory grew out of findings from applying uh, mathematics to try to predict weather, where you have something that <laughs> should really be predictable but is extremely difficult to predict because a slight change in one circumstance um, has huge downstream effects. Is that like a butterfly flaps its wings and, you know, a year later there's a tsunami or whatever? Yeah, exactly. It is called the butterfly effect. Um, it's any circumstance where a tiny change in circumstances ends up having huge downstream effects. So whenever someone made a decision to get on the first international flight, that wasn't just one act. It had massive consequences. And when effects of single actions compound like that, and also when you have these many variables for potential outcomes, yeah. models vary really dramatically. And right. that's not to explain exactly why 20% is right, but it's, it explains why it's possible. Yeah. So this is this is so frustrating because it's like, hey, there could be an extremely hopeful thing, but no guarantees. So probably we can't really do anything about it. Like, it's just this is information. It's that's the point is to have information about how this is working. And it is actually really actionable. 
because it tells us that we have the capacity to, to change this threshold. It, it depends in large part on us. There's a sort of fatalism, like Rush Limbaugh and other people kind of have just advocated, oh, just let it run wild because we're going to hit the same number of deaths no matter what. Well, that was kind of what I was starting to think is like, why are we not that we don't want to, you know, protect the most vulnerable people. And but it did seem like I mean, we've talked about this, that the that the number of deaths was essentially going to be the same, whether it went fast or slow. Yeah. But herd immunity is effectively like social distancing. It means Mm -hmm. you're taking people out of the equation. Mm -hmm. It means that when you're in a a crowded restaurant where 80% of people are immune, there are only, you know, 20% 20 of people are functionally in the restaurant. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you demand... But you can also just take 80% of the people out of the restaurant. Exactly. (laughs) And you have the same conditions. And so if you demand that we go back to the exact same crowded restaurant scenario that there's no mask wearing, that we hand wash just like we used to, that herd immunity threshold will be very high. So if we could live this way, if we can find ways to live this way until there is a vaccine, then the vaccine becomes quite relevant again. Right. I think this level of herd immunity is of interest in, and it will vary from place to place, um, because it's kind of going to tell you, okay, well, we can do this sort of pandemic life we're going to do, which is we're not always staying way. home it's the third way yeah but we're really deliberate about what we do and we're able to have some fun and we're able to do some socializing and we're able to have some culture like you can't 100 percent rule out that if we keep doing what we're doing we won't see a big spike but it seems unlikely so this step for places that i mean this doesn't because of the uncertainty, it doesn't really change anything for anyone, but it especially doesn't change anything for places that have yet to go through a catastrophe. Especially it does not. And and it, yeah. it should, so say New York decides to open indoor dining and it goes fine. You would not want to extrapolate a place that had, had no right, spike right. could do the same. Here's the, here, I have two practical questions for okay. me personally. One is... Am I still likely to get coronavirus? You said in February that I was. Yeah. Am I still? Yes. If we stop doing what we're doing um, to, to mitigate the virus spread, then yes. If we keep going like we are in New York, I think your chances are pretty good that you will not. Um, like if at I keep least doing not in a the short reasonable term. amount of distancing where I'm being cautious but not completely sealed in my apartment forever right. and ever. Um, if I take calculated small risks in order to live life, mm-hmm. it is completely possible that I will not get this virus. Yeah. And if, you know, if it doesn't take indeed a decade to get a vaccine, which we have which seen before, um, right now, um, it seems like we're doing well. You know that I I was I sort of figured I was just kind of going to get it sooner or later. Yeah. And although I understand all the reasons you don't want to get it, I mean obviously, obviously, obviously it's so dangerous. But there was some sort of like um I had a bit of fatalism about it that made me wonder if all the restrictions I was putting on myself were worth it. Like in their co- I mean the cost is high, <laughs> right? The cost is high to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, sure. So 
but this, I, I think what I'm taking away from what you're saying is that there is a real possibility that even most people in this country might not get it still. And uh, I don't know, not in the way we're going. <laughs> no. I mean, the U- U.S. is not taking the actions that would stop this from happening most most places. I think New York is... Okay, well... Uh, sorry. <laughs> here's, here's my... This is the follow-up question, though. If we're in this situation where there's this tantalizing possibility that it could only be 20% and I might not get it, but if we really have no idea, we have no idea when the vaccine's coming... Why am I trying not to get it? Um, because of the butterfly effect, right? Uh, among the other things we've talked about before, but that every single person, every single decision we make that's risky, uh, every case that develops, it can have big downstream effects. Um, I guess if there's a main takeaway, it's that herd immunity is not this magical number. Herd immunity is a concept, and we create mm-hmm. it in different ways. It's a concept that reminds us we're all in this together and you are effectively serving as, as a number in the immune group when you behave responsibly. You've removed yourself from the pool. So we can create that herd immunity different ways and we can set the threshold of how many people actually had to go through illness to get there by behavioral choices and policies. Is that clear enough? I, I, I think that was a big revelation idea, for me. I mean, that really changed the way I was thinking about this. That we actually have control, that herd immunity is not some magical medical number that is determined by biology. The threshold of the herd immunity is a, is a social choice. Yeah, that's, that's all it is. It's a concept of how you have populations in which there is not significant spread of the virus. And I can choose to behave like I can make myself functionally a person with antibodies by through my behavior. Um, right, exactly. Don't be the butterfly. That that totally makes sense to me. Yes. In the real world, there's not a safe way. Like changing your behaviors in ways that it inclines you to exposure risks this butterfly effect where you end up causing thousands of infections. Um even if right. you only personally right. infected one other person. Right. I could, you could link my behavior to the death of many others. Many, many others. Yeah, I, I right. think that is part of what people don't understand about this. And we can't unflap the wings, but they are, we can <laughs> interrupt the chain of what's happening right now and we can prevent the future flaps. Right. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I just learned a lot and feel newly um, committed to my responsible participation in this moment. Thank you for being patient with me. This was complex for me to learn about. No, it sounds incredibly complex. Um, okay. You know what I think we should do soon? Just by the way. What? Get antibody tests. Oh, I thought you were going to say collect butterflies. No, they deserve to be free. <laughs> okay. This show was produced today by Alvin Mellis. Write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or call us if you wish, 202-642-6487. Um, and subscribe. 
subscribe to The Atlantic, theatlantic.com slash support us. All righty. We'll talk next week. Bye. Okay. Bye. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.